All right, we on here? Maybe um, turn me down just a little bit because I get a little hyper when I preach. <laughs> I probably don't need this microphone, but thank you. Well, good to be with you uh, this afternoon. I, I hope that uh, along with all those chocolate chip cookies, you had some coffee uh, to uh, wake up a little bit. We'll have to compete with... Um, sanctuary behind me I'm just noticing but uh, hopefully what I'm saying will be interesting enough for you not to try to figure out what he's saying during his lecture it's good to, good to be with you all uh, today as we consider the law and the gospel let's pray together our father we thank you so much for uh, your grace we thank you for the gospel uh, lord we are uh, debtors to your grace, and uh, Lord, we want to live our lives uh, to your glory, and uh, we, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit and bless this time together as we consider the law and the gospel, its relationship, and in particular, as we open up uh, a section of Romans 2, uh, how it relates to the judgment and why truly the gospel is our only hope when we consider what the law is. Uh, in its uh, revelation to us uh, in, in, in nature, in general revelation, also in special revelation. Lord, bless this time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, you don't need to be a theologian or a sociologist uh, to know that the, the gospel is under attack in our day and in our culture. It's under attack in every age, certainly, because the gospel is Satan's main target. It's his main target. He has all the missiles of hell aimed at and being fired towards the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's firing them off constantly. He knows that if he can distort, undermine, confuse, or twist the gospel in the church, and in the lives of individual believers, he will strike at the very foundation of our faith, our worship, and our witness. Incidentally, isn't it wonderful how God in his wisdom has given us the means of grace so that the gospel would stay central in the worship of the church? And when God's people are being faithful to gather together morning and evening on the Lord's day, because it's not the Lord's morning, it's the Lord's day, right? We have, we have the, the means of grace, namely words, sacraments, and prayer, all pointing to Jesus Christ, all helping us to reflect deeply upon and to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our mediator. Uh, as the words faithfully preached, the gospel is being faithfully preached. As we come to the Lord's table, you could botch the sermon, but the Lord's table is so clear on the gospel. And as we have baptisms, we are led back to the gospel. And as we pray faithfully in the name of Jesus, we have the gospel being reinforced to us. And so, so when the gospel is undermined, of course, um, it, we, it, one of the big problems is the worship in uh, the modern church, both in traditional and contemporary churches. Uh, the gospel gets undermined because the means of grace aren't being faithfully administered. Uh, but the gospel is under attack, isn't it? Um, uh, one, of the, one of the main ways that uh, the devil attacks is by introducing doctrinal error, especially error that conflates the law and the gospel. Now, this is, this is really an important point uh, as we consider the law and the gospel. One of the biggest errors is the conflation of the law and the gospel, we see this error historically uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, of course, where salvation is a cooperative effort. Uh, salvation is accomplished through a combination of God's grace and our good works or our adhering to the law or the law of the church, the law of God in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, because of this arrangement, the assurance of salvation is always elusive. Uh, if salvation is a cooperation, a cooperative uh, endeavor or effort between you and God, then you'll never really know if you're doing enough. And by the way, the Roman Catholic Church knows that, which is why they don't have a doctrine of assurance, right? Uh, there was one particular uh, uh, day I was uh, coming off of several days of work out of town, and I was 
sitting down on the airplane and I was getting ready to put on my headphones and just pretend like no one existed in the world and I wanted to relax and I'd been with people for all these days and I thought, ah, oh, finally. So I sit down, being a little selfish, I must admit, and I look over and this lady next to me is reading a book and the chapter is on the sacraments and the writer of that chapter is an ex-PCA pastor who has become a Roman Catholic. So I'm like, wow. Uh, so I thought, well, the Lord doesn't want me to, uh, to be selfish and to relax here. He wants me to engage this lady. And she was a dear woman. And I, I leaned over and I said, uh, excuse me, ma'am, are you a Christian? And she said, yes, I am. I'm a, I'm a Catholic. I'm a Catholic Christian. I said, oh, okay. And we began to to talk and uh, she was sharing with me that she was uh, coming home from a pilgrimage in Europe. She'd been visiting all these holy sites and, uh, and uh, she told me she goes to mass every single morning and uh, says her prayers and receives the sacrament. And uh, so you get the point here. She led Bible studies. She was a very committed Roman Catholic. And I couldn't help but ask her. I said, uh, uh, well, let me ask you a question. Do you mind if I ask you a question? She said, no. I said, uh, do you believe you're going to heaven? She said, um, I don't know. I don't know if I am or not. She said, I guess it would be a little presumptive for me to think that I was. I don't know if I'm doing enough. I don't know if I'm devoted enough. She said, I don't know. Am I a bad Catholic for thinking that? I said, no, actually, you're being a, a good Catholic because you believe the Catholic doctrine, even though I believe your doctrine is wrong. It is consistent, it's consistent to be a Catholic and to have no assurance of faith because it's a cooperative effort. You never know if you're doing enough. And by the way, you aren't ever doing enough and you can't ever do enough, right? So she asked me, do you think you're going to heaven? Do you know if you're going to heaven? I said, well, yes, I do. She said, oh. And I said, uh, do you know why? And she said, well, why? I said, because getting to heaven is not about what I do. It's about what Jesus has done. It's about the gospel. Christ has done it all. And I began to walk through the gospel with her. And of course, she probably has heard some of these things before. We've since then exchanged a couple of, she sent me that book she was reading in the mail. Uh, and then I sent her a few things. I sent her uh, Luther's commentary on Galatians. But this is what happens is the gospel gets undermined by, uh, by, by religions that teach a cooperative effort like the Roman Catholic Church. Um, then there are less obvious attacks on the gospel, which I call... Uh, sort of legalism light, um, uh, not the harsh legal, legalism of the Pharisees, but legalism nonetheless, a trust in the law to save, but it's kind of a law light. And it, it really comes under the rubric of moralism. What are the grounds of your salvation, you ask many people? Well, I've lived a pretty good life. I, I haven't committed armed robbery or killed anybody. I've always paid my taxes and taken care of my family. I root for Clemson football. You know, everybody's trying to, to, to give reasons why they're right with God, but they all come under the banner of moralism. One of the big moralisms in our own day is social activism. This is the new legalism of our day. There are more Pharisees in the world today than ever before. Vaccine Pharisees on either side mask Pharisees on either side, and we could just keep naming them, social justice Pharisees. Everybody is, is, is preaching to the other without love, with consternation, with anger, irritation, and if you don't agree, you get canceled. And it's Pharisaism, and it's coming to the church. It's Pharisaism that has come into the church. The social justice CRT movement has crept into the church, and now in many ministries, the gospel is no longer about what, has, what God has done to save us, but what we are to do to save the world. That's the new law. I'm trying to give you a little bit of a picture and by way of introduction before we look at a, a portion of Romans 2 to demonstrate that the law and gospel distinction gets tricky in a complex culture and a complex subculture of evangelicalism. It gets tricky because if we are relying upon anything but the gospel to make us right with God or relying upon anything 
but the gospel uh, as it concerns our worship, um, then we are getting uh, off base. We are beginning to embrace something different than what God would have us to embrace. Um, the social gospel, it's, this is a social gospel, a gospel in new clothes, a false gospel which preaches ourselves and our good works as the good news for the world and not the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It has distorted mission, just as it did in the days of Machen, where when, the, when, when we become the gospel, going out to fix the world, which is a social gospel, then the true gospel stops being preached. It's about what we do rather than what God has done. This is why I have uh, spoken adamantly against a lot of the new movements that have come into the church, like the social justice movement and the social gospel. It all sounds so nice and helpful, but actually what it is doing is it's subverting the gospel. We're, we're marginalizing what God has done to focus on what we do. Uh, we are not to be the gospel. Uh, you are not the gospel. I am not the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. Christ is the gospel. We must not confuse the law and the gospel. It's what the devil wants, and it's that which we must fight against in every age. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, of course, who uh, was passionate about this law-gospel distinction, said this, quote, virtually the whole of the scriptures and the understanding of the whole of theology, the entire Christian life even, depends upon the true understanding of the law and the gospel. Dear friends, the law is not the gospel. What we do is not the gospel. The gospel is the true gospel. Jesus is the gospel. His cleansing blood and righteousness is the gospel. The gospel, as we are going to consider today, is that glorious announcement of what Christ has done to deliver us from what our sins deserve. That's a glorious gospel, and we never want to say that it's the gospel plus which equals redemption. As parents, we need to be careful that when we raise our kids in our Christian homes, that we don't raise them with this kind of inference that it's the gospel plus that saves them. It's important that we do that as parents. I've seen in a lot of conservative Christian homes, there are mixed messages sent to the kids that God requires of them this kind of, there's this good works mentality set up in the home so much so that it's not about them giving grateful obedience to Christ because of what he has done for them. It's that they're requiring of them certain things so that God will love them and that God will accept them. And uh, while it may not come out in those very words, it comes out uh, in a parenting style that can be uh, quite damaging to people. We need our children, we need our congregations to know the difference between the law and the gospel, so we must preach it and teach it clearly in our homes, in our churches, and elsewhere. But what I want to do uh, this afternoon is to look at Romans 2, 12 through 16, and, and as we look at these verses, as we unpack these verses a bit, I want us to look at the nature of the law um, and then uh, see, and then recognize the gospel in the context of God's impartial judgment of all men, both Jew and Gentile. After doing that, after unpacking some of these categories, which I think are very important, so I could give you, uh, you know, a very basic sort of lecture on the covenant of works, covenant of grace. You've been hearing a lot about that already this week, so I'm kind of glad I'm not doing that. Um, uh, and and giving you, you know, some very elementary teaching on the difference between the law and the gospel. What I want to do is unpack from God's word the nature of the law as it is written on our hearts and as it is given to us in the Mosaic Covenant to demonstrate that before an impartial God, you're going to want more <laughs> than just your attempts to obey that law. You're going to want Christ. 
You're going to want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of your own, but a righteousness that's found in Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, and then what I want to do is look at Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, and just briefly walk through that chapter, which I think is going to be real helpful, and hopefully will bring a lot of ideas together for you um, from what you've already heard uh, this, this week, and perhaps even, if, even from last year, if you were here for the, the conference on the law. Well, look with me at uh, Romans, um, Romans chapter 2, and verses 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Perhaps you have never considered verse 16, and in light of this conference, which is on the gospel, Paul says, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There could have been a lecture given at this conference. The gospel, God's judgment of the secrets of men. It's actually a part of the gospel message in its wholeness and fullness. And so I want to unpack that a little bit uh, for us this afternoon. Romans. Uh, Paul wrote Romans uh, uh, in uh, the city of Corinth on his third missionary journey, heading back to Jerusalem. Uh, Thank the Lord for his providence because we know that Paul wanted to go to Rome to visit the Christians long before this. In fact, he says, I long to be with you. I want to be with you. Paul didn't want to do Zoom, right? He wanted to be in person, have embodied in-person fellowship. And uh, he wanted to be with the people there. Thank the Lord and his providence. He hadn't been there or else we wouldn't have the book of Romans. And so he writes this letter to the Christians at Rome. He says he wants to, uh, uh, to um, exercise his spiritual gifts, to encourage them. He wants to be encouraged by them. And then he gives us, in the book of Romans, a kind of, of catechism for the church. Uh, walking us through uh, the universal depravity of man in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. And then he gives us an explanation of the gospel in chapter 3, verse 21, and, and, and following till chapter 5 on justification, and, and chapters 6 through 8 on sanctification, and 9 through 11 on election, and then, and then chapters 12 through 16, a very um, wonderful uh, 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 teaching about how to live the Christian life. Uh, in the light of all the wonderful uh, indicatives of the gospel in the first 11 chapters. But here, when we come uh, to our text, Paul is focusing on mankind's sin and God's just and impartial judgment for that sin on the last day for both Jews and Gentiles. And indeed, before he begins expounding the gospel of grace in chapter 3, verse 21, first he explains in considerable detail, the universal depravity and guilt of mankind and the divine judgment that ensues. Uh, I just began preaching through Romans. We moved into a new facility uh, in uh, February, January, February, and I was turning 50 at that time. I mean, I know y'all thought I was 34, but I'm 50 years old. And, uh, and so I, I, I always said to, to everyone, told my wife, I'm not preaching Romans till I turn 50. I want to get some gray hairs. I want to get some pastoral experience before I preach uh, the book of Romans. And so we began Romans. And we have been moving through Romans. We're now, I think, in our 23rd or 24th sermon, something like that. We're just beginning chapter 3. We're just walking through it. And it has been just a lot of sort of bad news from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3 and verse 20. And so uh, in this text... Uh, we are continually, con- continuing to be reminded, as we have been since chapter 1, verse 18, of the universal depravity and guilt of mankind and the divine judgment that ensues. Paul's been making the case since 118, 
chapter 118, that all are sinners, that all are without excuse, and all are subject to God's judgment. Yes, even the Jews. Paul, of course, was a Jew. And before he was saved by the grace of Christ, he was a self-righteous Pharisee. He knew what it was to be a self-righteous Pharisee, just like I know what it is to be a wild, worldly, wicked soccer player, because that's what I was before God got a hold of my life, my sophomore year of college. Paul knew what it was like to be a self-righteous Pharisee. He knew how the Jews thought about salvation. He knew that they believed they would escape God's wrath and judgment merely on the base of their religious status, their Jewish affiliation, and their possession of the law of Moses. You see, in these verses, Paul has this imaginary interlocutor, this this. this person he's arguing with. He's arguing with an imaginary Jew that he knows is going to argue with him on these various points that he's making and is going to argue back and ask questions. And so the Jews presumed upon God's favor even as they lived ungodly and unrighteous lives and self-righteous lives and rejected the very one whom God sent to save them. But Paul, wanting his fellow countrymen to understand the true gospel and their colossal need of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, explains the true nature and consequence of God's judgment. That's the context of this section. A section not about how a person is saved, but what happens at the judgment on the last day. Are you curious about what will happen when all people are raised and stand before the judgment seat of King Jesus? Well, if you're wondering about that, Paul teaches us about that here. In the previous section, in chapters in verses 6 through 11, we learn about the divine judgment. On that day, Paul writes, quote, God will render to each one, both Jew and Gentile, according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. We heard about that wrath and fury last night, didn't we? Here Paul explains how on the last day, the day of wrath and judgment, God judges both Jew and Gentile, now listen, on the reality of their faith. That is, those whose lives evidenced a sincere hope and longing for the glory of God's eternal presence, those who sought the honor of God in the midst of this fallen world, and those who sought immortality with God in heaven would, by grace, receive eternal life. This fruit evidences a life of living faith in Christ. You could read those verses and think, this looks like works righteousness. It's not at all. Is saying that you will be judged on the evidence of your faith. The grounds of your salvation are Christ alone. But the judgment, when King Jesus is judging the world, he will judge the world in righteousness, and he will judge based on the evidence of your faith. Though the grounds of your salvation will be Christ alone. But for those whose lives are devoid of those marks of true faith and patterned after self-seeking, disobedience, and unrighteousness, there will be, as it says in verse 8, wrath and fury in hell. Indeed, Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 5, that those with hard and impenitent hearts are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. Sometimes people have this idea that if you're a Christian, there's really no judgment, Wrong. (laughs) Paul reminds us that there is a judgment for Christians. Now, we will be judged on that longing for immortality, that those good works that are in our lives, right? That will be the evidence, though, of God's grace in our lives, not the grounds upon which we are gifted eternal life. Paul ends the previous section in verse 11 with a statement that informs our text. 
He states, for God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. He's not like us. Unlike human beings, God shows no partiality in his judgment. This isn't always easy for us to grasp. Why? Because we show partiality all the time. You get a call from a parent. Your child did this to my child. What's the first thing you think? (laughs) No. You defend your partial. We are never totally impartial. We judge ourselves in a more favorable light than we judge others. We show partiality in judging our family members. You've heard it said, blood is thicker than what? Than water. In other words, family ties are more important that, than the unity in baptism. That's what, that, that's what that means. So watch out when your churches are filled with all the same family. We can strike that from the recording if we need to. (laughs) We show partiality and judgment towards those in our particular social spheres uh, over those who are not. And on and on we can go. We are partial and biased and sometimes we think God is like that. We are often shaping God into our own image, aren't we? Rather than recognizing him for who he is and and worshiping him and believing him and, and, and loving him for who he is. God is not like us. God is perfectly just and completely impartial in his judgment. That's the important point that Paul is making clear in verses 12 through 16. So verses 12 and verse 16 are bookends stating the same main point that all have sinned and all will be judged. And verses 13 through 15, they serve as a, as a kind of parenthesis explaining upon what basis they will be judged, and by what standard. And that's really where we're going to see this law-gospel distinction very clearly set forth, and by what we are judged. For the Jews who possess the law, they will be judged by the law. That's the first heading. Judgment for those with the law, the Jews. Look at me again at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, I read, I read these verses earlier. I'm reading these verses again. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, that just sounds so confusing. Maybe it's just because it's the afternoon. I don't know. I didn't have enough coffee. These verses are a little bit hard to understand, okay? And uh, that's why we're spending a little time in them today. The Jews, we must remember, are God's chosen people. He chose them out of all the nations of the earth to receive his law and his covenant promises. Paul mentions their unique relationship to him in chapter to God in chapters, chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Quote, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The Jews were blessed. And yet we read in the Old Testament times that the Israelites rebelled against God. They they put their trust in foreign gods and lived in great wickedness. In the New Testament, most Jews rebelled against God by trusting in their self-righteousness, their possession of the law, and their ethnic status, and ultimately by rejecting the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Paul is making it clear that Purely possessing the law of Moses or merely hearing the law in the synagogues does not excuse the Jew from God's judgment. In fact, what Paul explains is that, quote, for all who have sinned and falls by the law will be judged by it. For all who have sinned under the law will be judged by it. Possessing the law, Paul tells the Jew, does not exempt you from judgment. It's the standard by which you will be judged at the judgment. He then explains that it's not the hearers of the law who are in a right standing with God, but the doers of the law. You understand now, the Jews believed by their ethnic status 
and later on in this chapter, by their circumcision, that they were exempted from the judgment. They were God's chosen people. They were God's special people. They were circumcised. They, they had the law. They heard the law in the synagogue. They, they, they were Jews. And so they presumed upon their salvation. Of course we're, we're, we're saved. Of course we're right with God. We're Jews. We're circumcised. We have the law. We hear the law. We're not like those dogs, those Gentiles over there. And so they were in this place of self-righteousness and presuming upon salvation. Paul knows that we are born with original sin, the sin of Adam, and thus are corrupted by sin in our minds, hearts, wills, and affections. He knows that everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, transgress God's law in countless ways. We fail to conform to it. So why does he say then in verse 13... That, quote, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now listen, he's making the point, not that there is a road to heaven for those who do the law, because doing the law according to God's standard is impossible for sinners, but that just having and hearing the law, this point is, is that just having and hearing the law does not make one justified before heaven's court. Again, that's how many Jews thought about the matter. Judgment, they thought, didn't really apply to them. It only applied to the Gentiles, but they were gravely mistaken. By the way, you say, what does this have to do with modern day? This happens all the time. People think that they're going to escape the judgment because they're a pretty good dude or because I'm a Baptist or because I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Lutheran. Of course I will escape the judgment. Of course I will be given entry into God. And there's no real sense that they need the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ to save them. It happens in our day too. The Jews presumed upon the grace of God because of their religious affiliation, because of their status, their blood, their hearing of the law. We do it oftentimes in our own day when we put our confidence in our church membership, our church affiliation, how many books we have on the shelf. We hear the word of God. We have the word of God on our shelves. Of course, of course, I'm going to escape God's wrath. Not of course. God's judgment is impartial. And we will see what our only hope is. What about the Gentiles? If God judged the Jews based upon the law given to Moses, then what would the Gentiles be judged by who are without the law? Are they accountable to God? Do we believe those who say, you know, we shouldn't go over and share the gospel with people overseas because then they'll be accountable. If you'd, if you'd say to them, you know, the gospel, they, now they know it. But before that, they're not accountable to God. They don't know anything. So let's, let's just stop doing mission and let everybody die in ignorance because then they'll go to heaven. I mean, that's, that's the kind of ridiculousness that, that has been communicated in the past. If God judged the Jews based on the law given to Moses, then what would the Gentiles be judged by who are without the law? Are they accountable to God? Since they don't have the law of Moses and the promises of God, are those who have not heard the word of God, or at least heard it clearly, presented not subject to God's judgment on the day of his appearing? It's what some have taught and what many have believed, but it's not what the Bible teaches. Look with me at verses 14 and 15 as we consider the second heading, judgment for those without the law. Quote, verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that while the Gentiles may not possess the law of Moses, the law written down on scrolls and read in the Jewish synagogues, they still, in a sense, are not without the law because they show that the work of the law is written, what? On their hearts. 
indeed as God's image bears, as sons of Adam, all people by nature are compelled to do what the law requires. How is this? Well, it's because, as we learned last night from Dr. Myers, the law is native to us as God's moral creatures. While the law is not written on our hearts like tablets of stone with the clarity of the Mosaic law, it is woven into our humanity, into the fabric of our beings. We are made in the imago dei. We have what Calvin called the sensus divinitatis, that sense of the divine. We're made in his image. And so that's how the law is, the work of the law is on our hearts. It makes sense that we have a conscience, doesn't it? That which bears witness to the things that are good and the things that are evil. In other words, deep down, human beings have a sense of right and wrong, even if they are, quote, without the law, the law of Moses. It's what theologians and scholars have referred to as natural law. Natural law. We see this evidenced on many levels throughout nations and societies throughout history. One example would be the Code of Hammurabi and myriad other justice systems that are not based upon the Ten Commandments but show similar characteristics. In expounding the theme of wisdom in Proverbs 8, the writer personifies wisdom, godly wisdom, wisdom from God, in leadership everywhere. Quote, by me... Again, wisdom personified. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. Wisdom and moral codes, in other words, are not just found among God's covenant people who possess his word. They are found in our divinely well-ordered universe and among human beings everywhere, human beings who are made in God's image. Aristotle recognized virtue, and so did the Stoic philosophers. They, they believed virtue was best expressed in living according to one's highest nature. That's the way they described it. David Van Drunen explains natural law helpfully, quote, Scripture speaks of the natural world as well-ordered, intelligible, and morally instructive In other words, at least part of the reason why human beings have moral knowledge apart from special revelation, that is his word, and are accountable to God for how they use it is because creation itself communicates moral truth to them. Remember what Paul says again in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 through 20. Quote, look there with me, Romans 1, 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Truth suppression is what fallen human beings are very good at doing. Truth suppression. Then he goes on. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, now watch here, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So Adam, as again we heard last night, who was created in the garden, was created with original righteousness. And when he looked at creation, of course, He knew the author of creation. This couldn't just happen. He knew the God of creation. He was in perfect communion and harmony with the God of creation. And creation itself gave witness to the creative, powerful, loving, wise hand of God. God's signature is all over creation. It's one reason I love living in the South Carolina low country. My kids make fun of me now about how much I love birds. They're like, Dad, why do you like birds so much? What's wrong with you? It's because God's, the signature of God's creative hand and power is on all these beautiful uh, uh, blue herons and, and cardinals and uh, pelicans and seagulls and all these beautiful seabirds. And as we look around, we know deep down because of the sensus divinitatis, because of the sense of the divine, because we're made in the image of God and the God's law 
the works of God's law written on our heart, we know that all of this just didn't happen. And so what, what fallen humanity does is they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It's like a two-year-old putting their fingers in their, their, hand, their, their, fingers in their ears and, and uh, not wanting to listen. But there is a creator. I, I shared an um, illustration in my, for my church family uh, uh, a couple years ago related to this subject that if they were to walk into the church say if you were to walk into this room and uh, there was a lego castle built with 5,000 pieces okay I, I hardly think you or anyone or even the craziest atheist in the world would walk in and think that 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 perhaps that just came together on its own that uh, maybe a windstorm or something after five billion years, you know, it just all came together. It's ridiculous. We would, and yet, and yet, we would look at the universe, the beauty and the complexity, the wisdom, the glory of the universe, and we would say, oh, it came from an explosion. Where did that explosion come from? Well, I don't know. It came from nothing. So something came from nothing. And you don't believe in God. You don't believe in an original mover. Well, I mean, that takes more faith than anything that we have. So, so Paul is, is speaking to this, saying that, that all are without what? Excuse. That all are without excuse because of this knowledge that they have of God in creation. So not only does creation bear witness to God's existence and his truth, making all men morally accountable, but so does God's law, which is, in a sense, a part of our moral fabric as human beings made in God's image. This sense of right and wrong, this native moral compass that we have, of course, is greatly damaged by sin. It's why we see and hear about and read about such extraordinary wickedness taking place in different parts of the world. And for some, their consciences are greatly seared by patterns of extreme wickedness. But that's not what Paul is dealing with here. He is dealing generally with the standard that the Gentiles will be judged by. And dear ones, what they will be judged by is the same as that which the Jews will be judged by, God's law, albeit God's law brought to bear by a different revelation, rather uh, natural revelation rather than special revelation. So we see the contrast and similarities here between God's judgment of the Jew and the Gentile. They will both be judged by God's law. You see, when Adam was created with original righteousness in the garden and God made the covenant of works with him and he fell into sin, that covenant of works, which we're going to read in the Westminster Confession, is still in force. God's standard continues to be perfection, perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. And it's by that standard that we will all be judged. And that law that was written on the heart of Adam and that's written on the hearts of all humanity, albeit broken now, because the image of God is, as Calvin says, shattered within us, that perfect law was summarized and given to God's people in the Ten Commandments and then later summarized by Christ himself. That law was given to the Jews, bringing even greater accountability to them because the law was so clearly set forth before them. But here's the point Paul is making. Whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile, you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ at the resurrection. And it will be an impartial judgment. And this brings us to verse 16. Judgment and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul writes, On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now remember, Paul is not yet to the place where he will give a careful explanation of the gospel. It doesn't happen until 320, chapter 3, verse 21. But here he alludes to it and he anticipates it, doesn't he? He says, according to my gospel, 
Judgment of the secrets of men is a part of the gospel narrative. It's a part of the story. There's no good news if there's no what? Bad news. The gospel doesn't make sense apart from God's judgment. Those who remove sin, misery, and judgment from the story greatly undermine, even destroy the gospel message. It's why a man like Joel Osteen, who has such a lovely smile, is a snake and a false prophet, and he's influencing not hundreds, not thousands, but millions of people. And in interviews on 2020 and these kinds of things, he says, you know, it's just not my ministry to talk about sin and judgment and hell. I'll leave that up to others to figure all that out. I'm preaching a message of love. How's my imitation? That's pretty good. Yeah, good. Okay. And it's so seductive because we all want to get along. None of us wants to walk into a room and offend people. None of us wants to lose friends at work. And so it's appealing. Love wins. Rob Bell, right? It's all going to work out in the end. No, it is not all going to work out in the end. It's like telling someone who's been diagnosed with cancer, run along. It'll take care of itself. You'll be okay. Paul says, according to my gospel, there will be judgments of the secrets, the judgment of the secrets of men. If we remove this, we do great damage to the gospel. Paul knows all of this, and so did 20th century scholar Richard Niebuhr, who, when describing liberal Christianity, said that liberals preached, quote, a God without wrath, bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. But if we believe God's word, we hear Paul stating that according to the gospel, God judges the secrets of men. Every sinful thought, every evil deed. Can you just for a moment think about what that means? Now let's say you're somewhere around how old I am. You're a little bit, maybe less than 50, a little bit more than 50. You're somewhere around there. You might be younger, whatever. Think about every sinful thought that you've ever committed. And let's say that every sinful thought is an acorn. And we're going to put that in a pile over here. <laughs> we're not done with the thinking yet. And every thought that you should be having is, is now another acorn over here, another pile. Everything you have done that is sinful is another pile. All the things you haven't done that you should have done is another pile. Everything that you've said that you shouldn't have said is a pile. Some of you wives are saying, my husband's pile is really high. It's really high. Another pile of all the things you should have said, all the encouragement you should have brought, all the kindness you should have said. Another pile. Now put all that into one pile. How high does that pile go? If you have a proper understanding of your own heart, dear one, your own sin, it is a very, very big pile. And all of it, all of it, every secret thought, every evil deed, every wicked word, all the things that you haven't done that you should have done and ha should have said and didn't and should have thought that all of that, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, will be exposed. Not one thing will be left out. It'll all be there. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Judgment, he says to the Jew, he says to the Baptist, he says to the Presbyterian, he says to the Lutheran, he says to the Congregationalist, 
Judgment is not according to who you are affiliated with. It's that which will expose all of our sins, all the secrets of the mind, all the purposes of the heart. Knowing this, dear one, do you want to put your faith in the law? Do you want to stand there with that giant, massive pile of sin that speaks against you and accuses you as the devil points it to you? And you say, but I've got the law. I've done I've done pretty well. I, I've stayed married. Or I've gone on some mission trips. My children are believers. That's what I offer to you, God. But we can't escape God's wrath and justice by our own works, our own efforts to obey the law. The law, the law in its first or second use, depending on which historical list you look to, the law exposes our sin. It is not a savior. The law doesn't save us. It slays us. It, it, it reveals the wickedness of our hearts. It shows us our sin. It's like a mirror that when we look into it, we cannot help but see the wretchedness of our sin and our profound need of a righteousness that's not our own. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Every pile of sin. You think of how big just your, just my pile is up to the sky, of, up to space of the sins I've committed in my lifetime. All of the sins of all of the elect were heaped upon Christ on Calvary. Every single wicked secret or purpose or word or deed or thought was placed upon the Savior on Calvary. And now you know why it would have been impossible for anyone to bear up under that awful load but one who was both human and divine. Christ bore our sins. Indeed, God has not left us to perish in our sin. He's not forgotten or abandoned us. He's not simply given us over to our wicked desires and the just penalty of our sins. And that is the good news of the gospel, the staggering and life-changing announcement that Jesus Christ rescues us from what our sin and rebellion deserve. We deserve God's wrath and judgment for our sin, but through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive grace and mercy and forgiveness. You know the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee comes and he begins to brag about all the things that he's doing. And, and, and by the way, I'm glad I'm not like that tax collector over there. And the tax collector who's so broken before God and recognizing God's holiness and his own sin, he can't even lift his eyes to heaven. He says these simple words, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. Jesus says, which one went away justified? Well, we know it's the, the tax collector. And it's really after a lifetime of faithful service to the Lord because there is something called being faithful to the Lord. Not perfect, but being faithful. But after a lifetime of faithfulness, there's still that understanding of the load of sin that Christ bore for us and paid that debt so that at the end of, a, of, of, of a, someone who's lived you know, a hundred years of being faithful to church and to Sunday school and to service in their community and to raising their kids in the Lord and, 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 and on and on I could go. At the end of that, the only thing they should say in their dying breath, really, the only thing that should come to mind is have mercy on me, a sinner with the understanding that they know that it's in Christ alone 
that we receive that mercy and we rest in his righteousness alone. Rather than leave us to perish in our chosen defiance, God did the unthinkable. In love, he sent his beloved and eternal son into the world to save us from our sins. In love, he pursued us. God knows that our sinful condition rendered us utterly incapable of faithfully pursuing him, of working our way back into his favor. God knows we are unable to cleanse our own hearts from our stain of sin. He, he, we cannot heal ourselves from this deadly spiritual contagion. COVID's not the real problem in the world. It's sin. That's the real disease we should be all talking about. It should be on the headlines every day. We're all worried about what might kill 0.0001% of the population. And I do not say this callously. I lost my father-in-law to COVID in, in April of last year. It was devastating to our family. But that's not the real problem. The real problem is the contagion of sin. And we cannot heal ourselves. We are incapable of fulfilling the requirements of God's law. And even our best good works are bad good works. Tainted with sin. We have all fallen immeasurably short of God's glory. We may grade ourselves on a moral curve, but God does not. Indeed, God cannot because he's God. And he cannot allow one sin to go unaccounted for and still be God. His, holy, his holiness and justice require perfection. God's law is an extension of his holy character, a reflection of his sublime holiness. This is why God hates sin so much. Because sin is treason against God. Psalm 5, the psalmist declares, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. But God, in his infinite and indescribable love, sent his beloved Son into this broken and sin-torn world to redeem sinners like us. Despite all we had done and do, to rebel against God, he sent his only son to make things right between us and God, to reconcile us to him. God did this for you. Not just, don't think of it as just this sea of people. It's, 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 it's for you. He died for you because of your sin. Because of the myriad ways you have rebelled against God, he died for you. And so what a gospel what a gospel it is. I want to make, I've got so much more here, but I'm, I'm, I know our t- my time is done. I want to just mention uh, two things, okay? Um, the first one is this, that when we think about the three uses of the law, we recognize that the law, it, it restrains sin in the world, that the law is there, the natural law does that in us, right? It restrains sin. We have consciences. Uh, the, 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 the written law restrains sin as well as it's known, as it's out there. God's Spirit uses it, common grace, to restrain sin in the world. People aren't as bad as they could be. It's also, as I mentioned earlier, that which shows us our sin and shows us our need of a Savior. But there is what's called the third use of the law. And this is important because when we have this law-gospel distinction, we want to recognize that when we become Christians and we are no longer under the condemnation of the law, but now under grace, it doesn't mean that we no longer make use of the law anymore or that the law has no bearing on our lives anymore. In fact, what happens is that if I'm standing here as an unbeliever, the law condemns me, it shows me my sin, it shows me that I'm hopeless on my own. And, it sh- and then, I, by God's grace, I look to Christ and, and I realize, that, like Paul in Philippians 3, that uh, I don't want to be found having a righteousness of my own that's found in the law because I know that righteousness is tainted and is as filthy rags. I want the righteousness that's found in Christ um, and received through faith Okay, so, so I recognize that. So by God's grace, I am brought in by the Spirit into union with Christ. Now I am justified before God, no longer condemned by the law. And now Christ, if I can put it this way, with his nail-scarred hands, hands that law to me and says, the law is now your friend. It was your enemy. Now it is your friend. I think Luther, in his Lutheresque way, said, hang Moses on the gallows. 
We have the gospel. His point was, Moses can't save you. The law can't save you. Recognize that. But here's the thing. As a Christian, we have the third use of the law. It's a guide for the Christian life. It's that which God has given us. Say, this is now how you must please me. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Heidelberg Catechism. The gratitude section has the Ten Commandments. This is how you show your gratitude to the Lord by being obedient to the word. God knows you can't be perfectly obedient. That's why we continue to confess our sin. Come to the Lord's table. Hear the gospel, joy in it, and grow in the grace and knowledge of the truth. That we need this law in our lives. And I want to read just one quote before I finish here. And it's by Zacharias Ursinus. And um, those of you that are three forms of unity folk will be familiar with Ursinus as one of the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism. Listen to this. The preaching of the law goes before preparing and leading us to a knowledge of the gospel. Quote, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. Hence, there can be no sorrow for sin without the law. After the sinner has once been led to a knowledge of sin, then the preaching of the gospel follows, encouraging contrite hearts by the assurance of the mercy of God through Christ. Without the preaching, there is no faith, and without faith, there is no love to God, and hence no conversion to him. After the preaching of the gospel... He writes, the preaching of the law again follows that it may be the rule of our thankfulness and of our life. The law, therefore, precedes and follows conversion. You got that? The law, therefore, precedes and follows conversion. It precedes that it may lead to a knowledge and sorrow for sin. It follows that it may serve as a rule of life to the converted. It is for this reason that the prophets first charge sin upon the ungodly, threaten punishment, and exhort to repentance, then comfort and promise pardon and forgiveness, and lastly, again, exhort and prescribe the duties of piety and godliness. That's in Ursinus' commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, page 472, if you would like to look to look it up. The third use of the law, therefore, when taught and preached faithfully, in no way negotiates the gospel of grace or introduces a new form of legalism. Rightly understood, legalism seeks to add something to the grounds of our justification. The merits of Christ supplemented by our own merits. Thus, to preach the law as a guide and rule of life for those whose faith is resting in Christ alone for salvation is not legalism. And while it is true that, quote, even the holiest men while in this life have only a small beginning of this obedience, Heidelberg Catechism, question 114, we nevertheless, with sincere resolution, are called to begin to live not only according to some, but according to all the commandments. And in the final section of the Westminster Confession, chapter 19, it says that the law properly understood when we are under the covenant of grace, is not, it does not contradict the gospel. I love these words. It sweetly complies with it. Law and gospel. Dear ones, do not conflate them. Do not mix them up. It is the gospel that saves. The law cannot save us. We don't start with the gospel and continue in the flesh, Galatians. In other words, Glory, hallelujah, I'm a Christian. Now I'm going to live according to the law and I'm going to stop thinking about the gospel and, and abiding in Christ. Now, I'm going to, now it's up to me to live. No, no. The gospel is all of life. We continue to receive Christ at the table and we remember our baptisms. We hear the preaching of the gospel. It's the gospel that is the center of the Christian life. It's, what, it's, it's the, the, the foundation of our salvation. It's the motivation for the Christian life and fuels us for mission. The gospel must stay central. But let us recognize this, that the law has a very, very important place in the life of the Christian. The guide by which we live our lives and show our gratitude to the Lord for his amazing grace. 
How do I live for the Lord, Pastor John? How do I live for the Lord? His law tells you all the imperatives that are set forth in the Bible. And so the law and the gospel distinction are so important, but let us not make the mistake that many antinomians have made to say, oh, now I'm in Christ, I don't need to worry about the law any longer. I don't want to think about the law any longer. I'm just going to think about my, my, my uh, position before the Lord as justified. We must recognize the law as having a very central and important part of the Christian life. And so if you are a preacher here today, let me exhort you and encourage you to teach your people how to live. Do not just teach your people and preach to your people the glorious gospel, which you must do every time you step in the pulpit, but also do not be afraid or timid to teach your people how to live the Christian life from God's word. They need that. They want that. The church needs godly Christians. Amen? Thankful godly Christians, not angry, irritable, censorious, bookish, reform people. The church needs thankful, humble, kind, gracious, God-loving Christians who are glorying in the gospel of grace and living according to his word. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time together. What a joy it is, Lord, to consider the law and the gospel. Lord, we know that our only hope before uh, you is, is Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that while we will be judged upon our works, we thank you that uh, those works will only be the evidence of the, of the gift of faith you've given to us that we've exercised in our lifetimes as we've longed for eternal life and, uh, and, and sought your glory. Uh, Lord, that is what we long for, but it's not because of anything good in us. It's because you have chosen us before the foundation of the world and sent your son to die for us and applied that work to our lives and raised us to new life by your spirit and, and uh, given us your word uh, that we might uh, live for your glory. And Lord, we fail to live as we ought. Our lives uh, continue uh, to be filled with so much sin and and uh, we ask, Lord, for your forgiveness, and we pray that you would help us to grow, uh, to grow in our hatred for sin and our love for Christ, to grow in gratitude, uh, to not be distracted by this world so as to take our eyes off of your Son. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.